This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 118 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest is John Moran, Senior Product Manager at DF Labs, whose offerings include a SOAR platform for cybersecurity. John shares his career journey from public safety to digital forensics and cybersecurity, his thoughts on some of the benefits and misconceptions surrounding SOAR deployment, insights on threat intelligence, and much more. Stay with us. I certainly have had a, uh, we'll say, a different career path. Uh, the, the the short version is I actually started out in uh, public safety many years ago. And uh, while I was in public safety, I uh, started teaching myself how to program on the side and, and developed kind of interest in programming and, and uh, the IT side of things. And from there, I went into uh, IT doing sysadmin, network admin, um, and uh, during one of my classes that I was taking for that, I, I discovered computer forensics, and that was a great uh, kind of mix for me. I still enjoyed the, the public safety, the investigative side of things, but I also enjoyed the, uh, the technology side of things, so computer forensics was great for me. I uh, pursued computer forensics and, and worked in the uh, computer crimes unit uh, for a law enforcement agency for uh, several years before transitioning to the private sector and doing uh, incident response and uh, computer forensics consulting. And uh, then I, I kind of found I, I, I enjoy doing the consulting, but I, I really kind of have a love for um, finding ways to, to make things better, finding uh, problems and, and fun ways to solve them which is uh, what brought me to my uh, current role here at DF Labs doing uh, product management. And, and what sort of uh, things does DF Labs do? So uh, we have been around actually for uh, a little over a decade now. Uh, originally was a uh, consulting firm doing uh, forensics and incident response consulting, and then uh, pivoted into what was originally a case management solution. And uh, that was uh, DF Labs Inc. Man in its uh, first iteration, Probably about four or five years ago now, as the, the SOAR market started to emerge, we pivoted into uh, SOAR, Security Orchestration Automation and Response. So we now have a, a platform that uh, is a full uh, SOAR platform, but also has that very strong background in, in case management and incident management. Hmm. I want to go back and uh, and talk a little bit about your time uh, doing computer forensic uh, analysis. Uh, you worked with the Maine State Police Computer Crimes Unit. Um, can you give us some insights? What is that job like when when you're tasked with uh, you know taking possession of of someone's computer that may have been involved in some sort of a, a crime? Can you walk us through what is what's that process like? Sure. Obviously, you know it was a great experience, and and in many ways, I I still miss uh, working in in that uh, law enforcement environment. Um, you know, it was it was fun. It was challenging. It certainly, uh, you know, they say every day is different, and and that's very true. Obviously, some of the uh, material and 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 things that you have to view on a, a daily basis can uh, can be a bit challenging, um, but but overall it was very very rewarding. Um, you know the the processes are you know very defined when you when you talk about actually you know 
specifically having to take somebody's computer and, and go through those things. Obviously, there's uh, processes and procedures that, that you have to follow, both uh, you know just department processes as well as as legal processes, right? Things like you know search warrants and subpoenas and and uh, all of that. And of course, the you know the processes have to be followed very closely because uh, you know the kind of the worst thing that can happen is to go through all of that and uh, you know have your your case or your investigation thrown out uh, because something wasn't followed properly so uh, it's something that we you know stick to very closely were there any any common things that you'd run into where i'm thinking of uh things where the bad guys would um think that they were doing something that was going to outsmart you all um but it wasn't it you know it was something that it was easy for you all to overcome were there there any sorts of things like that that you ran into time and time again um, you know, it, it's actually kind of funny. I think, uh, you know, partially uh, just because you would think that they would uh, try to hide things very carefully and, and uh, partially because uh, I think sometimes that's the way it's portrayed on, on TV. Uh, it, it's actually, uh, you know, kind of amusing how often people don't really try to hide themselves uh, very well. Now, obviously, when you get into some of the more, uh, you know, advanced crimes, the people that are uh, perhaps doing this as a... Uh, as a profession, if you will, they obviously go through uh, some extra steps to try to remain hidden. But the, the sort of average day-to-day uh, people that you see involved in, in some of the more common cybercrimes really aren't taking uh, very many steps at all to, to protect themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those that do, you know, it's actually kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a nice challenge <laughs> at some mm-hmm. point uh, because you actually, you know, have to spend some time when you look at people who are using, you know, encryption uh, is, a, is a common thing we run into or using some sort of a, uh, you know, a proxy or a, a or like service, uh, you know, those are kind of the more more challenging ones, and and kind of makes it a little bit more exciting. I would say those are probably the two most common that we would run into is is encryption or some sort of a a proxying or or Tor like service. Now, the the training that you received and the experience that you had uh, as a public safety officer, what does that bring you in terms of the insights and uh, that you have uh, with the work you do in cyber? Well, you know, a lot of the, I think the investigative practices really uh, carry over, right? You know, you're still, uh, you know, you're investigating obviously different crimes. They have different implications or different incidents with different implications. But the investigative process is is still very similar. And and working in law enforcement really, I think, prepares you well uh, for working in investigations in the in the private sector. I think that's why you see a lot of people uh, either leave law enforcement or retire from law enforcement and, and go into the private sector and, and are very successful in that because you, you have that background that you really don't get anywhere else. Um, and, and obviously, uh, you know, it certainly exposes you to working under, uh, you know, adverse conditions, under uh, mm-hmm. high-pressure situations and, you uh, uh, again, although it's different, you, you certainly face those same sort of uh, conditions and challenges in the uh, in the private sector as well, and and it prepares you very well to deal with those. I would imagine too that it gives you a, a lot of good preparation uh, for the human side of things. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, there there is uh, as much as we uh, sometimes hate it. There is certainly a, a human component to, to having to you know deal with uh, humans sometimes and. In investigations, whether it's on the uh, the victim side or perhaps the, the the suspect side of any investigation, 
and uh, and it does. You know, it it obviously teaches you uh, you know interview skills, uh, but also you know how to be uh, you know compassionate and and work with uh, victims or work with people who are uh, you know perhaps experiencing a very bad uh, moment, whether it's professionally or personally, and be able to work with those people uh, effectively. I want to dig into uh, some of the work that you're doing with DF Labs, uh, specifically the security orchestration and automation and response, um, SOAR. Um, for folks who may not be familiar with SOAR, how do you describe it? So uh, really what SOAR is designed to do is make your security operations process uh, more efficient. If I had to sort of a one-line description, that's really what it's about. It's about taking the uh, the inefficiencies and the challenges that uh, everybody's facing in security operations, and and trying to uh, trying to solve those challenges. Right. So uh, when we talk about orchestration, the the O in SOAR, uh, you're really talking about you know bringing kind of those disparate technologies together. Um, you know, allowing your your uh, SIM and your EDR and your network technologies, really bringing those together under one umbrella and, and kind of giving you that single platform to work under. When we talk about the automation in SOAR, obviously we're, we're talking about being able to automate processes to, uh, you know, really kind of take up the, the mundane tasks that uh, analysts are doing every day, right? Those things that you just, for every incident, you've got to do the same thing over and over and over again. Hmm. The automation is really meant to kind of uh, automate those those mundane tasks and, and free up analyst time to really work on things that, that need human intervention, right? If I can free up that time that you're taking to do the same thing, it may only take a minute, two minutes for every incident, but when you're handling 100 incidents a day, that's a lot of time. Uh, so the automation component really allows you to, to free up that time and uh, you know allow your analysts that, that their time is really valuable to work on more critical tasks. And what is the transition like for companies who've decided that they want to adopt uh, a SOAR approach um, what sort of changes can they expect, and, and what is that uh, is is that transition uh, easy, or does it, what what sort of effort does it take? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the the ease of the transition I think really depends a lot on the security program and and the maturity of the existing security program. You don't need to have uh, a huge security program and uh, you know dozens of technologies to integrate to be successful with a, a SOAR solution. Uh, but what you do need is, is a certain amount of planning and uh, you know, standard processes to really be successful with a SOAR solution. So the organizations that we see that are, are the most successful are, are the ones that have done that sort of pre-planning and, and have a, uh, a set of policies or procedures, whether they're complex or very simple, uh, because that's really what you're, what you're doing with a SOAR solution, right? You're, you're building out your existing workflows and automating those and, and orchestrating those, right? So I have a malware uh, response that I go through for malware incidents. I'm going to take those and uh, I'm going to build out those same workflows in a, in a source solution. So if those don't exist, um, you know, you have a lot more uh, spin-up time because you have to sort of build those out on the fly. Um, so that, that, I think, is, is probably the single biggest sort of key to success, I guess, if you will. Hmm. Now, are, are there particularly uh, sized organizations that, that it works best with? Do you, do you have to be of a certain size, or is there a, a sweet spot somewhere? 
No, I don't, I don't think you need to necessarily be of a of a specific size. I think, you know, we've seen obviously, uh, you know, very large, uh, you know, enterprises implement source solutions, federal governments uh, implement source solutions, and, and they can be very successful with that. They are very successful with that. But we've also seen, you know, sort of small to mid-sized organizations uh, looking at source solutions as well, because, uh, you know, while they may not have the, the number of technologies in place or the complex procedures in place, um, they also don't have the, the amount of staff uh, that these larger organizations do. So they mm-hmm. can still really benefit from the kind of the force multiplication of a, of a source solution. Are there any uh, common uh, misperceptions that that you find people have about it? You know, I, I think uh, from the from the analyst side, I think uh, one of the most common misperceptions that we see is that it's really meant to replace an analyst, right? That that we're we're going to take this automation and this you know machine learning and and all these other fancy buzzwords, and we're we're trying to get rid of analysts, uh, and and that's simply not the case. Uh, people are, and I think always will be a critical part of the the security operations program. What we're trying to do is make analysts more efficient. I talked about that that force multiplication and that freeing up analyst time. We don't want to get rid of the analysts. We want to allow these overworked analysts to you know have the information already ready for them. So let's automate the stuff that we can automate, so that a, a human analyst can actually focus their their valuable time on the stuff that they can't automate, the stuff that requires a, a human decision or a human action to do. And and maybe even start being uh, proactive in our security programs. If you can free up enough time to actually allow your analysts to not just be reactive, but start being proactive, that's a much better use of your of your analyst time. So we're definitely not trying to replace anybody. We're just trying to give analysts the tools to be uh, as effective as possible. Hmm. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about um, threat intelligence. Uh, and get your take on uh, where you think threat intelligence fits in in, in an organization's defenses. Well, I, I think threat intelligence, whether you're you're talking about uh, SOAR or you're talking about manual investigations, is uh, really a critical component, right? And and when we talk about you know threat intelligence, I, I think one of the critical things for me is is really actionable threat intelligence right threat intelligence can be can be great or it can be very poor and and obviously i think anybody who's worked in the industry for uh, any length of time uh, has probably experienced both ends of that spectrum uh, but really actionable threat intelligence is is critical i think across uh, not only the uh, you know the sort of the initial event validation stage uh, but throughout the entire incident response life cycle right when you're talking about not only investigating but being able to effectively contain and, and even remediate uh, a threat Having that good quality actionable threat intelligence is is super critical uh, to make sure that uh, one you've identified the threat and and two that there's nothing uh, you know maybe that you've you've missed or you know other indicators that may be related uh, or other infections that may be sort of secondary that that you may have missed. I, I think what I really wanted to uh, to touch on for just a second is the the critical uh, component that threat intelligence plays in a uh, in a, in a SOAR environment. Uh, we talked about it a little bit in the uh, general investigative process, but I think it's it's equally, if not more important, in a in an automated environment. 
we're trying to take the the processes and the procedures that users go through when they're uh, doing a, a security event or, or an incident response, and we're trying to automate those. So we need to make sure that the threat intelligence that is uh, being fed into the source solution to base these automated decisions on is uh, is reliable and, and, and is actionable uh, because uh, otherwise you, you really just kind of lose some of the value of these automated decisions. Yeah, I, I'm wondering um, if you have any tips or advice to folks who are looking at uh, cybersecurity as a career path, particularly uh, since your pathway was a little bit unconventional. Uh, you had a, a, an array of experience um, any advice for folks who are thinking of uh, joining cybersecurity? You know, I think uh, one of the things that's benefited me uh, quite a bit was uh, really having a, a sort of solid background in uh, in network operations, in in system administration. Um, you know, having having that sort of core background is is a great place to start. Uh, because you know it's like it's it's not exciting it's not fun it's not sexy uh, but that stuff that that knowledge that you gain uh, really you know informs what you're going to be doing in in security operations you need to have that background knowledge so I think getting that sort of base knowledge and uh, and and then you know showing that you can take on additional tasks especially in a you know in a larger environment. Um, I think that can be a, a great way to get started and, and build some base knowledge. Obviously, you know, there's uh, some people are very uh, pro-certification. Some people are very anti-certification. Um, to, to me, in, in my particular path, uh, certifications or, or these at least the certification classes were great for me, uh, not because I necessarily wanted to put a couple letters after my name, but because it gave me that it gave me that introduction, it gave me that base knowledge that I could build off of. Because I, I was coming from a uh, you know a, a largely non forensics background, so um, you know having that sort of base knowledge really gave me a, a a leg up and allowed me to at least get my my foot in the door. Because so much of it then is is kind of on the job and 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 learning as you go. Hmm. You know, uh, you spent a good amount of time working uh, on incident response, and I'm curious, based on your experience there, um, what sort of advice do you have for folks in terms of, uh, I don't know, preparing for the inevitable, uh, when when that incident occurs, what are the things they can do ahead of time that's going to make that less painful? I think obviously, you know, having a having a good incident response plan in place is is really critical. That was something that we used to do a lot in the consulting space was helping organizations develop their incident response plans, and and you know that sort of uh, planning on paper is is critical. But uh, equally as critical, I think, is is testing those plans and and doing exercises, right? Because having an incident response plan that uh, you've you've developed and it's documented and you spent months, you know, nailing down all the details, and then it goes on a shelf or or probably a shared drive somewhere or something. Uh, and and never get seen again, right? It, it, it's not doing you much good. Um, so you know, we used to do a lot of of tabletop exercises and uh, technical exercises with our our clients, and that was really beneficial because you know they would actually get to see that in action and identify any gaps, right? Things that sound good on paper, you actually. Put them into practice, and you go, "Ooh, this this may this may not work." Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that, and and finally, I think uh, to go along with that, 
one of probably the, the, the most eye-opening uh, experiences people in, in tabletop exercises that, that I saw was when we brought in other teams uh, into the tabletop exercises. So, you know, it's very easy to do a tabletop exercise with your security team and maybe your, uh, your executive suite. But there's going to be a lot of other teams involved in, in the incident response process, right? Legal, human resources, you know, external counsel, corporate communications. Um, and, and that really was, I think, an eye-opener to a lot of people when we brought in those other teams because they really started understanding, one, the, the larger picture, right? What, you know, why do we have this incident response plan? And how does it actually work? And, and seeing what these other teams are doing. Uh, but also kind of gave them a better, I, I think, appreciation uh, for what the other teams are doing and, and kind of why it's important to have them uh, involved. Yeah, it strikes me that um, I would imagine that that could be at the outset a difficult thing to convince uh, an executive team in particular that 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 that's time well spent, that the investment in that amount of time to do that is going to pay off. But then I would imagine on the flip side, when they've had these aha moments, that you probably experience them going, oh, okay, now I get it. This this was time well spent. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for for a first tabletop exercise, or if you've never done one before, you know, it, it might be a good idea to start out small, right? Do do one, you know, with with your security team, and then kind of build out from there. Uh, but I, you know, I don't think in, in all the tabletop exercises that that I did uh, with uh, you know executive and and other staff that uh, any of the executives ever came up after and said, wow, that was a, a giant waste of my time. Um, <laughs> you know, they were really, you know, they were, they were impressed uh, and, and they, they thought it was a very worthwhile exercise. And, uh, you know, we had uh, numerous uh, clients that we, you know, we would do those year after year after year with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, it's, it's time well spent, uh, precious time, because obviously it can take some time to get on the executive's calendar, but, uh, but time well spent, absolutely. Our thanks to John Moran from DF Labs for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.